Welcome to Reverb, everyone. I'm Calvin Pollock. And I'm Alex Helberg. Today's show is Reverb's entry in the 2020 Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival, whose theme is the digital future of rhetoric and composition. Along with this episode and their own special release, the Big Rhetorical Podcast will be releasing and promoting episodes from six other amazing rhetoric podcasts. The Global Rhetorics Podcast, Hieroticast, Rhetorically Yours, Rhetoricity, Rhetorically Speaking, and the Writing Remix Podcast. We are, of course, very honored to be included among this fantastic group of contributors, Please check out all of the other episodes that will be released this week as part of the carnival. Those can be accessed at thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com, and we will also put links in the show notes on our website and on our Twitter feed. On August 6th, 2020, President Trump signed a pair of executive orders. The, quote, executive order on addressing the threat posed by TikTok and the similarly named executive order on addressing the threat posed by WeChat. In general, compared to President Obama, Trump has been markedly more bellicose towards China, engaging in various economic, diplomatic, military and intelligence policies designed to, in the words of a May 2020 strategic approach document, quote, compel Beijing to cease or reduce actions harmful to the United States' vital national interests, unquote. But with the recent executive orders targeting two massively popular Chinese-owned internet platforms, this conflict appears to be escalating. What may formerly have felt like saber-rattling on both sides for nationalist audiences is now at risk of being felt at a much more acute level. By ordinary American and Chinese people using the internet every day during a global pandemic that has rendered our communication platforms more vital than ever. So, on today's episode, we will explore the rhetoric and politics of this growing US China digital divide, but we do so in a very different style than on previous Reverb episodes. As the centerpiece of this conversation, we have not conducted an interview. Instead, shortly after these executive orders were announced, we reached out to a source. No, they are not a whistleblower deep in the Trump administration. <laughs> Our source is an ordinary Chinese international student studying in the U.S. As such, they are experiencing both sides of this digital divide every day. We wanted to find out what the very different regimes of surveillance and censorship in the U.S. and China look and feel like to such a person someone who has been rendered precarious by two governments simultaneously. And we wanted to get their personal take on the political meanings and implications of recent U.S. executive orders and Chinese internet regulations. To protect their identity, we will be using a speech-to-text program to read out their responses to questions that we sent them related to these issues. Before we do that, though, we need to talk, I think, in a bit more detail about Trump's recent executive orders and some of the interesting rhetorical tactics going on within them. So prior to Trump's TikTok and WeChat executive orders, the administration enacted a May 15th, 2019 executive order that both of these subsequent orders reference. This was the executive order on, quote, securing the information and communications technology and services supply chain. You got that? Yes. Yeah. We're talking about supply chains here, folks. Yeah, I, th I think that needs to be underscored as kind of the centerpiece of this particular executive order and contextualized in the sort of 
broader i mean we can we'll probably get into this uh as we pick apart the way that the order is contextualized to uh the broader scale of uh global manufacturing of technology specifically um but i think early on it's important to to prime our listeners that this is about supply chains and and that's kind of primarily what we're talking about here absolutely so right near the beginning of this reads quote i donald j trump President of the United States of America, find that foreign adversaries are increasingly creating and exploiting vulnerabilities in information and communications technology and services, which store and communicate vast amounts of sensitive information, facilitate the digital economy, and support critical infrastructure and vital emergency services. In order to commit malicious cyber-enabled actions, including economic and industrial espionage against the United States and its people. So far, sounding a lot like Donald J. Trump actually wrote this, uh, probably actually dictated it. Yeah, yeah, it's very much in, uh, in his uh, his diction, you <laughs> yes. know, his command of complex <laughs> sentences are really, really on display here. Right. No, I mean, like, I think that this first sentence already lays out a lot of interesting claims. It's an incredibly difficult sentence to parse because it has like five embedded clauses. But <laughs> yes. but it discusses the fact that so a key term here is going to be foreign adversaries. Yes. And how those are defined. And later in the executive order it actually gives a definition which which is worth looking at. But but it also talks about how these information and communications technology and services store and communicate vast amounts of sensitive information. And I think it's important to underline that as something that is not exactly any other country's fault other than the United States. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, for real. Like a lot of the, I mean, the the reason that a lot of that infrastructure exists already is due to, yeah, the usage of these products by American consumers, right? So well, like and and uh, but and and the demand for that was was very much intentionally cultivated by technology corporations that received massive government grants and contracts to create these technologies in the eighties and nineties. So you know, all of this kind of filters down from a concerted cyber strategy by the military and the intelligence community, and of course, very much supported by business interests in Silicon Valley. Oh, of course. And, and I mean, yeah, the, the, the way that this is already being laid out, it's also clear that this is, you know, the way that, that a lot of these sort of malicious actions are being described don't sound all that different from, say, you know, the selling of Facebook data to Cambridge Analytica, you know, during the uh, the 2016 presidential election and all these other sorts of uses and exploitation of, you know, sensitive information um, and things like that in order to commit malicious cyber-enabled actions, you know, whether or not that's, you know, just selling data to candidates or to political campaigns and things like that. It's clear that this is not just a foreign adversary issue, but of course, that's that's probably not how the Trump administration wants us to be thinking about it. Right. So it goes on. I further find that the unrestricted acquisition or use in the United States of information and communications technology designed, developed, manufactured, or supplied by persons owned by, controlled by, or subject to the jurisdiction or direction of foreign adversaries 
augments the ability of those foreign adversaries to create and exploit vulnerabilities in information and communications technology with potentially catastrophic effects and thereby constitutes an unusual and extraordinary threat to our national security, foreign policy, and economy. So again, like, you know, we're going to get very tired on the, on this episode of hypocrisy shaming, <laughs> but I mean, one of yes. the, the most important and fascinating revelations of the Snowden leaks was that the U.S. was basically inserting vulnerabilities in popular technology products sold by U.S. manufacturers to other countries that we wanted to target for surveillance. So basically, what they're accusing other countries of doing within the U.S. market, the U.S. has been doing to other countries, certainly adversary countries, quote-unquote, for a very long time. Right. And, and I think the way that that always seems to get reconciled or that sort of cognitive dissonance is that, well, this is in our national interest, right? You know, it's 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 OK when we do it to other countries because it's for it's, you know, you as an American should, you know, should realize that it's in your interest for your government to do this, even though they, you know, would never really cop to it fully. That's always kind of the tacit justification, it seems, that, you know, there is an interest, a national interest in our capability, our nation's capability to surveil other populations, to build backdoors into technology that we're exporting elsewhere. But when it comes home to roost, uh, when it, when there's even a, an inkling of a threat or the, the whiff of one in the air, it is all of a sudden this totally unacceptable practice that needs to be swiftly condemned. Exactly. So then there's a, another really key line here. It says, although maintaining an open investment climate in information and communications technology and in the U.S. economy more generally is important for the overall growth and prosperity of the United States, such openness must be balanced by the need to protect our country against critical national security threats. Yeah, I, I think that line was inserted in there specifically for a very specific type of audience member specifically silicon valley heads or people who are in this sort of international or i guess global technology markets in preparation for this i just kind of was googling around to see what reactions i could find to these executive orders one of the most interesting series of reactions that i found to this specific one was from global technology firms you know that are based in the u.s but that rely a lot on international business dealings, you know, that have to do with like importing and exporting ICT or information communication technology. And a lot of what they were addressing first and foremost was this sort of economic bottom line of like what happens when you basically sanction an entire country that is a tech powerhouse, um, you know, responsible for supplying, uh, you know, a, a large, large quantity of the world's uh, microprocessors and importing a, a larger quantities of rare earth minerals and and mining for them themselves. Yeah, it's 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 very clear that this is, you know, there is something that needed to be put in there to to you know, at least try and in some ways say, hey, you know, I see you. I, I, <laughs> I you know, we're still going to go through with this, but but I want you to know we are thinking of your investments. Right. I mean, it's fascinating that like this is the one hedge in here is like now we know that, you know, anything that could be perceived as negative for business is usually a bad thing. Nevertheless, we got to we got to cut China off and we have to cut other countries off that that may potentially yeah. be national security threats. We could imagine a very different 
version of this document where it says something like where the hedge is much more, you know, amenable to people like you and me, where it says, although we have been doing this to other countries for decades and decades, or (laughs) although um, sanctioning countries for things that we have been doing for decades and decades is bad for international diplomacy and peace, and then explain why it's still necessary or why it, you know, on balance is a prudent thing to do. But there's not even that effort made. The only interest other than a purely nationalist one that's given any sort of textual real estate here is basic business interests. I want to get into like what this executive order actually says that it does. So it it basically, in section one, implementation, lists actions that are prohibited. And these are described in very vague terms. Any acquisition, importation, transfer, installation, dealing in or use of any information and communications technology by any person subject to the jurisdiction of the U.S. where that transaction involves the property of a foreign country or national thereof that we're concerned about. So, so like that's a, that, that's a mouthful, but it lists that very vague action and then it states that the Secretary of Commerce can consult with the heads of basically every federal agency. So Secretary of Treasury, Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of Homeland Security, Attorney General, etc., and determine that this transaction involves tech that was developed by either by the government of a foreign adversary or a company that is within that foreign adversary's jurisdictions. So it implies that like any tech developed in a country that we're unfriendly with could potentially be threatened by this. And I think it's important as well to read the definition of foreign adversary. So down in section three, it says the term foreign adversary means any foreign government or foreign non-government person engaged in a long-term pattern or serious instances of conduct significantly adverse to the national security of the United States or security and safety of United States persons. Whew. So There's definitely no way that they could, that that could be overinterpreted um, in any way, shape or form. Well, and I mean, the text of that could apply to plenty of people in the United States government, like a long term pattern or serious instances of conduct significantly adverse to yeah. the national security. By all accounts, every major war, you know, since <laughs> the early 1990s has harmed our national security. Right. So could we say that like, (laughs) you know, the entire military establishment is a foreign (laughs) adversary by this definition? Yeah, absolutely. It's just, you know, as soon as you start injecting value language, like adverse to the national security, yeah, there's just going to be endless debates over how you define that and um, what counts as a serious instance, right? (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Uh, I'm thinking, yeah, like uh, Charlie Wilson, uh, greatest foreign adversary for uh, funneling tons of money to the uh, Mujahideen that eventually <laughs> like made its way into the hands of uh, Al Qaeda. And, and you know, yeah, and led to 9/11 exactly. Yes, or, or even, yeah, yeah. or even, how does Saudi Arabia not count as a foreign adversary oh. by this definition? 
so I mean, are we are we saying that we're not going to allow any tech developed by Saudi firms or how about Israeli firms? Um, yeah, for real. I mean, is, Israel has a massive tech sector, and yes. I would highly doubt that the Trump administration or the Biden administration, who who I seriously doubt, are going to rescind this executive order. By the way, yep. I, I doubt that they would use this definition to ban Israeli tech products, but it certainly could be used to justify that. Now, the reason that I wanted to touch on that is because these executive orders on TikTok and WeChat directly reference this. That was a kind of broad executive order intended to you know, state our policy about foreign tech that we're concerned about. But we have some specific examples now that we want to call out and say we are using that executive order to justify shutting down specific tech companies and specific tech platforms. So the first one I wanted to start with is the TikTok executive order. So it, it, it begins, again, by referencing the executive order that we were just talking about. And it says, I, Donald J. Trump, find that additional steps must be taken to deal with the national emergency with respect to information and communications technology declared in the executive order of May 15, 2019. He goes on, quote, the spread, uh, specifically the spread in the United States of mobile applications developed and owned by companies in the People's Republic of China, parentheses, China, <laughs> continues to threaten the national security, foreign policy, and economy of the United States. So right there, like directly targeting China and saying the spread throughout yeah. the U.S. of these mobile applications is, the, the is, is a threat. The spread, I, and uh, and of course, I'm sure the threat that he's referring to is uh, is is teens getting together in groups, dancing on their on their you know in front of their high schools uh, on their front porches, not paying attention to you know traffic and other passersby. Yeah, they're um, not doing their homework. They're, that's you know, right. That's I mean, right. no. It, <laughs> so let's see how the executive order describes TikTok. Yeah. Quote. TikTok, a video sharing mobile application owned by the Chinese company ByteDance Limited has reportedly been downloaded over 175 million times in the United States and over 1 billion times globally. This is just kind of this is like a <laughs> this is a marketing white sheet for That's for right. TikTok. <laughs> like it makes I me want to invest, invest you know? now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's right. Wow, that user base. Think of the penetration that your your ad revenue could get. Exactly. So it goes on. TikTok automatically captures vast swaths of information from its users. This also sounds like the administration <laughs> is like patting them on the back, like great work yes. getting all that information. Yeah, it's like, oh man, you should yeah, like, like go consult for Facebook, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, oh. quote, including internet and other network activity information, such as location data and browsing and search histories. Again, something every single U.S. tech company does. <laughs> yeah, and um, and the NSA and CIA yes. and, and local governments and police departments. Right, when um, they're not in, when they're not working in concert with one another. <laughs> yes, this data collection threatens to allow the Chinese Communist Party Caps, all caps. Yes, uh, yes. Access to Americans' personal and proprietary information, potentially allowing China to track the locations of federal employees and contractors, build dossiers of personal information for blackmail, and conduct corporate espionage. 
Yeah, I mean, they they sound cool, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> this is making them sound really, really cool. I kind of I kind of like them more. Well, I no. mean, <laughs> tracking federal employees and contractors, yeah. build dossiers of personal information for blackmail. Come on, and conduct yeah. corporate corporate espionage. <laughs> I mean, one of actually one of the uh, most interesting Snowden leaks that people forget about. I think it was in like September of 2013 major scandal in brazil was that the documents revealed that the nsa was spying on the brazilian oil giant petrobras that's right and there's virtually no i mean you can't justify that based on counterterrorism. that's for sure and that and (laughs) and that was the the overwhelming self-legitimating response from the intelligence community was that all of the programs of surveillance that we do are strictly designed to prevent terrorism or other serious national security threats, nuclear proliferation, massive cyber attacks, etc. I mean, was Petrobras planning a massive cyber attack on the United States? Um, <laughs> it just seems like pretty obvious corporate espionage. Yes, and. and yeah, and that wasn't the only example. No, I, um, I think that that's, that that's really important to point us to, though, because I think that this is kind of one of those rare moments where they're they're kind of letting it slip sort of what this is really about, right? Like Like national security is so often, I think, especially in the rhetoric of the Trump administration, used as kind of a cover for national interest in the form of like business and economic interests of the major corporations of the United States. Right. You know, the spying on Petrobras, like again, you, (laughs) why why would you be conducting corporate espionage on any oil company, especially in Latin American countries? Hmm. Nothing suspicious there. (laughs) Yeah. No, Uh, no long and sordid history there. Ah, yeah. Of of manipulating Latin American oil and energy markets. Right. Exactly. When we talked about the supply chain executive order earlier, like that is explicitly about an economic chain of production, something that is pretty clearly being it's very thinly veiled in the interest of national security. But again, is more wisely read as a protection of business interests, right, Right. Uh, of economic resources and control over how they flow globally especially just given the the long history of escalating economic tensions between the US and China uh, in terms of you know production and and distribution around the world ownership of infrastructure in uh, in critical parts of the world especially in Africa right now yeah. like that's kind of a big issue for for China uh, you know selling and uh, and building a lot of the the ICT infrastructure in uh, African nations there's a lot of competition still being played out there and a lot of resource extraction especially in Africa with the rare earth minerals that is currently being duked out that we're probably never going to see in the pages of one of these executive orders but we can we can kind of look beneath the surface of you know the, all this talk about national security and really you know kind of figure out it doesn't take a lot of steps to figure out that what we're really talking about is economic security for business interests in the US absolutely yes so it says here quote TikTok also reportedly censors content that the Chinese Communist Party deems politically sensitive, such as content concerning protests in Hong Kong and China's treatment of Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities. 
This mobile application may also be used for disinformation campaigns that benefit the Chinese Communist Party, such as when TikTok videos spread debunked conspiracy theories about the origins of the 2019 novel coronavirus. I'm surprised he didn't call it the Chinese virus in, in this paragraph. <laughs> that probably took a lot of restraint. Yeah, I mean, come on. Debunked conspiracy theories about the novel coronavirus. Is TikTok <laughs> and China really the problem here? I yeah, mean, like, yeah, you, exactly. You have like a third of Americans believe that it's a hoax or right. will we'll not take a vaccine. Right, or um, that you can take hydroxychloroquine to cure it uh, and things like that. Right, exactly. I mean, like, to what extent are mobile applications in the U.S. that are spreading disinformation and spreading debunked conspiracy theories about the coronavirus doing so because the president is doing that? And they're, <laughs> like, they're, <Right. laughs> they're, they're posting and reposting videos of him saying that. So we can think about this executive order as a a specific use of the previous executive order. So what it's doing here now they're saying beginning 45 days after this order, so this was August 6th, 45 days after that, any transaction with ByteDance, which is the company that owns TikTok, will be prohibited. So if this is not challenged in court or somehow superseded by events, it could potentially be illegal to download the app relatively unprecedented step where you're saying you cannot download this communication platform and turning last of all to the WeChat executive order it would basically do the same thing but for WeChat which is actually and our source gets into this a little bit it's actually a much more crucial communication platform for tons and tons of people around the world so in the WeChat executive order it says quote WeChat a messaging, social media, and electronic payment application owned by the Chinese company Tencent Holdings reportedly has over 1 billion users worldwide, including users in the United States. Again, Again. sign sign me up. (laughs) (laughs) Take my money. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's like, okay, you're you're doing great PR for this (laughs) this app and this company. But you're also, and you're also inadvertently underscoring how serious and severe this action is right right right. when you want to shut down protests what you do is you shut down the primary communication platform used for those protests like you know Hosni Mubarak in Egypt shut down Facebook chat because it was being used by protesters to organize now I'm not saying that this is being done in response to protests but when you shut down like a primary communication platform used by billions of people around the world. Yeah. What are you saying? Going on. Like TikTok, WeChat automatically captures vast swaths of information from its users. This data collection threatens to allow the Chinese Communist Party access to Americans' personal and proprietary information. In addition, the application captures the personal and proprietary information of Chinese nationals visiting the United States, thereby allowing the Chinese Communist Party a mechanism for keeping tabs on Chinese citizens who may be enjoying the benefits of a free society for the first time in their lives. Oh, my God. The absolute just, like, pathos of that line. (laughs) That's amazing. I didn't even notice that on the first read-through. Enjoying the benefits of a free society. Oh, man. It's a little confusing, right? Because... (laughs) 
if they're enjoying the benefits of a free society for the first time in their lives, why would you want to shut down one of the main communication platforms they're using to express those freedoms? Yeah. Right? Well, yeah. And again, also just the kind of irony of uh, a well-known practice of government of a free society shutting down communications platforms. (laughs) Exactly. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Just the doublespeak in that. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. So similar to the TikTok order, what this order does or will do if it remains legal for all 45 days is that it will ban transactions related to WeChat. And right. and many comment many commentators have made the point that this will make it illegal for for instance Apple to 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 allow WeChat to be downloaded from its App Store. Right. So very severe yeah, potentially threatening one of the major communication options for, as the executive order says, billions of people around the world. So I think the way that we've been approaching this is in keeping with how you and I have talked about many executive orders and instances of presidential rhetoric during the Trump administration, which is that as many prior administrations have done, but it's kind of been supercharged with this administration. History seems to begin anew almost with each with each new rhetorical intervention. And there's a, there's a deliberate erasure of past United States actions, of the kind of just ongoing push and pull of international conflict, of even contemporaneous events going on in our own country that make certain claims or narratives or value judgments somewhat problematic. And we tend to approach these things from that perspective of living in the U.S., lived through a lot of chaotic and really radicalizing political events throughout our lives. Like we've seen the Iraq War, we've seen the the 2008 Wall Street crash, and the way that um, basically the government and Wall Street worked together to prevent any sort of actual accountability for you know that scandal. Basically, we've seen like a kind of large-scale legitimation crisis happen throughout many parts of the government and the economy in the U.S. And I think that that, that colors how we read executive orders like this and presidential rhetoric writ large. But I think it's useful to bring in other kinds of voices and other approaches to these kinds of problems. And that's that's what we wanted to do by reaching out to a person who is experiencing this in a very different way. So to shift into that conversation, shortly after these executive orders came out, we reached out to someone and sent them questions related to these executive orders and the issues that they address. Because what we wanted to do was get some more context for how this is affecting people, specifically Chinese people living in the U.S. who rely on tools like WeChat to keep in touch with other people and who experience just sort of very relatable situation of being far from home and wanting to keep in touch with people but also 
just like you and I experience this at a political level and have political reactions and values that they bring to bear on these situations. Yeah, in keeping with the the general theme of this podcast, Carnival, I think what's going to be interesting to reflect on here is... You know, when we t- think about the digital future of rhetoric and composition, like how is that going to be shaped by material forces that the media that we're talking about, the digital media, are contained within? So seeing the way that that travels from the sort of high abstract level of, you know, business and governments uh, and, and their actions internationally to the most local level of like somebody who experiences both sides of a digital divide I think is really crucial if you're going to do any kind of analysis of like what this digital future is going to look like. Absolutely. Yeah. Like the goal here in part was to think about how will this growing conflict over the internet shape digital rhetoric in the future. And so we'll we'll want to think about that as we listen to these answers. So the first question that we asked our source was, from your perspective as a Chinese international student in the U.S., how does the U.S.-China digital divide manifest on a daily basis? What are some of your daily practices navigating this divide and so on? And this is what our source sent to us. As I've experienced it so far, the most conspicuous manifestation is the imminent prospect of losing touch with my parents and friends in the Chinese mainland if WeChat were really to be banned per President Trump's executive order. I've heard some voices on Chinese social media platforms say that even if WeChat were banned, we can still stay in touch with parents and friends in the Chinese mainland using QQ, but really I think that's naive because, first, WeChat and QQ belong to the same company, Tencent, and if WeChat is banned so would QQ be sooner or later. Some subscription accounts on WeChat have been posting alternative ways to stay in touch with their subscribers, I, through apps other than WeChat, and some of my friends have posted their alternative social media accounts on WeChat Moments, which is like Facebook, where you post things visible to your FB friends, whereas WeChat itself works more like Messenger, but... This practice simultaneously perpetuates the concern about losing touch. It's hard to take a break from this kind of negative stuff when people don't need more concerns loaded on their minds during the pandemic. Moreover, there have been reports that the U.S. State Department's Clean Network Program is also considering doing something to reduce the number of Chinese mobile carriers. Well, banning WeChat and potentially related chat apps may take away online meeting time. In other words, meeting people with cameras on so that the person you're talking to can see your face, as opposed to just hearing your voice. But if Chinese mobile carriers are banned, that will take away even our baseline voice calling capabilities, and push international students back to solely text messaging. Now, it may not be as bad as all that, since even if foreign networks can't operate, people can usually call internationally using U.S. mobile carriers. But there have been concerns in the Chinese mainland that people will have to go back to buying prepaid phone cards to stay in touch with family members. Right now, I'm inclined to think all of these things will not happen, because the current digital divide seems less about WeChat, TikTok, or mobile carriers in themselves. 
It looks more like those technologies are being used as bargaining chips to achieve other things in diplomacy. Okay. Very interesting answer there from our source. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, so first and foremost, I mean, my my first reaction to to hearing this was genuinely like heartbreak. I, I can't even imagine, you know, knowing that knowing the prospect of you communicating with your family is being used as 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 our source as a bargaining chip for <laughs> these uh, international diplomacy. I mean, that that alone is horrifying, you know, on even just a personal level. But also, I mean, I think I, I this this shows that like the, the person that we're talking to has a pretty savvy understanding of how this is playing out on on both sides of the and like what the interests are, at least of the U.S., regarding things like the clean network program i hadn't even heard about that before but i don't think that's i mean in terms of just being worried about the sort of escalating tensions and and uh, knowing that communications infrastructure is a fulcrum here in this economic diplomacy battle um yeah i would be worried too <laughs> yeah no i think it's it's incredibly gut-wrenching to hear about that and, and and just all of the sort of extra labor that goes into keeping in touch with people when you're threatened by these kinds of restrictions and shutdowns because you know someone in this situation already is constrained by their own government's actions and now they're facing additional restrictions from you know the u.s government the point about bargaining chips to achieve other things in diplomacy is really interesting and i think that that would i would agree with that if this were a normal administration but i i do wonder if if they're really going to try this if they're really going to go all the way with this or at the very least, I think what they're interested in doing is forcing some kind of restructuring so that WeChat, TikTok, and other platforms that are used by Chinese people in the U.S. can be bought by U.S. companies that are more friendly yes. to the administration. It bears mentioning that there has been talks, at least, that uh, TikTok, it's been speculated that Microsoft is potentially planning to pick them up for something to the tune of like a couple billion or something like that. Right. And 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 so that's not that's something that we should keep in our minds as well is that this could this could be a consolidation of basic or it's a it's a it's a power move essentially in some ways by to, US tech uh, companies. To, right, to try and force the exchange of ownership over this technology and this infrastructure to to US companies rather than Chinese companies. Um but either that, way it's but, pretty pretty grotesque. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that that is terrible from the perspective of democracy as well because tech companies yes. already have way too much power. I think that, you know, of course we should be concerned about tech companies in China that are close to the Chinese government, but tech companies in the US are very close to the US government. And That's the idea right. of them not facing any competition in certain sectors you know, that's been the subject of massive lawsuits throughout history. Like Microsoft yeah. itself faced a massive antitrust lawsuit in the late 90s. And, and mm -hmm. so are we just going back to that time? <laughs> I mean, I, I would think, if anything, like international competition in, in tech is really important to prevent incredibly dystopian tech oligarchies. Yes. And if, if the shutdown goes ahead... That's really terrible for the the basic democratic rights and communication practices of people living 
both in this country and in other countries, or if some kind of business restructuring goes ahead, that's terrible in terms of concentrating power in the hands of these already massive companies. So absolutely. And and just one one final note for me at least on the particular position that this puts international students in, students who are in this position where they are living in the US, you know, studying here on a on a visa uh, of some kind and have family elsewhere, you know, already living apart from your primary network of support, but at the same time, it also, I think this administration recognizes the the way that international students can be used as a, I, I don't want to keep using the term bargaining chip, but like, just look at the ICE order uh, that was, you know, put out and then kind of partially rescinded regarding international students not being able to renew their visas or having their visas revoked if they weren't taking any in-person classes, you know, as this kind of like weird strategy to whatever it was, like get universities to open up again, just, just craven, um, like really, it's hard to see that as anything other than just this really craven use of a vulnerable population as, as this kind of like a, like a, a, a crude tool of some kind of wielding power over uh, American universities or, or whoever, it's part and parcel with this administration's approach to using incredibly vulnerable populations and and threatening them in order to gain concessions from from some other party that it feels itself antithetical towards. Right. It's it's incredibly morally grotesque, especially given the claims in these executive orders about things like quote. Chinese citizens who may be enjoying the benefits of a free society for the first time in their lives, unquote, when you are telling Chinese international students who make up the largest plurality of international students in the U.S. that they cannot remain in this country and attend universities unless they attend their classes in person during a raging pandemic and you're shutting down their primary means of keeping in touch with their families and friends. It rings pretty hollow. But so the next question that we asked was kind of getting at more of the perspective of what the, the Internet is like for people in China and Chinese people abroad. So we asked, what, in your opinion, are the most visible, tangible differences between the U.S. Internet and Chinese Internet? Can you give some examples? And this is what our source told us. The first thing that comes to my mind is censorship. For example... When you search some topics that the government of the Chinese mainland thinks is sensitive on the Chinese search engine, like Baidu, you get lists of results that would be different from what you would see if you searched the same topic on Google in the US as of now. I can't think of a more typical example than the Tiananmen movement in 1989. This event itself is a taboo, and I heard people say, on anniversaries of this event, even expressions like today, blah blah blah, years ago, will be censored and the author of, say, a post that contains such a phrase, will probably have their account warned by the censorship personnel. There are other taboos or sensitive words that may, or may not, signal that someone is criticizing the government, and internet language has even changed under the influence of this kind of censorship. For example, you don't see people type out Zheng Fu Pinyin for government in Chinese, but you see the initials ZF 
and readers would instantly understand that ZF means the government. Similarly, you don't see Gong Chan Dang Pinyin for the Communist Party typed out. Instead, you see GCD, that is, the initials of the corresponding Pinyin. I guess the government assumed that if people use those words, there is a higher likelihood that they're commenting on government policies than if they are not using those words, and there is a higher likelihood that there's something censorable in those comments than elsewhere. Technically, that seems like a fairly effective approach to detecting the census. Just for context there, I wanted to point out that the source talks about these phrases in pinyin, and what pinyin is is basically Chinese words written out in English characters so that English speakers can pronounce them, sort of approximate the pronunciation in the Chinese. So what they're talking about there are Chinese words that filters used by communication platforms within China search for those words and will basically censor content that contains them. Yeah, so that's what they were getting at there with with those examples. Yeah, obviously censorship is probably something that some of our listeners may be familiar with if you've if you've read a little bit about global internet freedom and and things like that. You know, there there is the uh, often what is invoked is the the term the Great Firewall uh, to describe the Chinese internets, uh, the the sort of uh, filters and things like that that are put on search networks as well as the uh, sort of rigorous cracking down on uh, information that is related to things like what our source mentioned the uh, Tiananmen movement and the Tiananmen Square massacre. Uh, are censored explicitly by the government. It's denied by the government that that event took place, and and a lot of discussions of it are kind of uh, a, a lot is done to to excise that from public consciousness. But but I think it's also important to realize that from what our source is telling us here, people are finding ways around it. Right, like they they find ways to use this kind of like coded. Uh, coded language or at least acronyms uh, for certain things to to discuss the Communist Party or the government uh, in ways that will not explicitly uh, be picked up by the by the censors. Right. I definitely appreciate our source talking about you know the 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 mechanisms that people use to get around the censors. I think it's important too to think about that governments don't exist in vacuums from each other, and and I think. What we're talking about on this episode is a perfect example of that. Like, why are these censorship issues coming up in this conversation? Because Chinese search engines like Baidu are used instead of U.S. platforms. And you could argue that by analogy, um, shutting down something like WeChat or something like TikTok is just going to force people onto other platforms. And you don't know what the situation is going to be on those platforms, what the level of censorship will be, what the what the common um, communication practices and norms will be on those platforms. So none of these policies occur outside of the realm of international politics. Right. Absolutely. The next question that we asked was, why do you think that so many U.S. executive orders relating to these technologies have been instituted in the past three years. And this is what they told us. Many mainlanders think, or are led to believe, 
that President Trump does this first in order to gain more support so he can get re-elected. Second, these views also hold that these executive orders represent an inevitable phase, regardless of who is president, relations between the U.S. and PRC. The reason is that the PRC has been developing so fast and has not always played by the rules set by the U.S., and as a result if nothing is done, the status of the U.S. as a world leader would be challenged. By challenged, I don't mean replaced, as I think very few, if any, in the Chinese mainland would be as naive as the public around the time of the Great Leap Forward or the Cultural Revolution, when Chinese citizens believed that their country could easily surpass the U.S. and its ideological partners. According to this view, which is held by many mainlanders, the reason for those executive orders lies not in President Trump and his particular agendas but in considerations like who gets the upper hand in international economy and politics, which are things often contended by major powers. In other words, those executive orders only represent how a superpower like the U.S. would reasonably react when it perceives potential challenges from a rising economy, which is something that sooner or later will happen. And it's just a matter of when it will happen. All right. So again, wow. uh, yeah, again, our source giving us a really powerful analysis of the kind of international politics of this. What, what did you think of that? Yeah. I mean, so so uh, just to contextualize here, when our source says mainlanders, they're talking about uh, people who who live on the Chinese mainland. Right. It's basically distinguishing people who live in the mainland rather than in Hong Kong or Taiwan. Hong Kong and Taiwan both have a relatively different government system and system of political norms and are, are granted a certain amount of autonomy from uh, the Chinese government, although that has been under attack in recent years. But yeah, the, so this, the source is trying to basically give us some insight into how um, other people from the mainland are, are thinking about this. Yeah. And, and what I think is really interesting is is that, you know, if what they are saying is true, then, you know, I, it seems like people, you know, Chinese mainlanders have a pretty cogent view of international relations broadly. Uh, that, that idea that, you know, the, these are not people who are, you know, uh, as, as they say, you know, naive as the people, you know, around the time of Great Leap Forward or the Cultural Revolution uh, in their sort of belief that like China could, you know, economically surpass the U.S. as a global superpower. But rather, this is something that's being fought uh, at the level of capital ownership and and the, you know, consolidation of, of resources and supply chains within particular national jurisdictions, which honestly, I think is pretty fascinating because I my sense is that a lot of people in the U.S. don't really think about it that way. Um, and and especially, you know, if the the support of Trump's base is to be taken for what it looks like in, in a lot of cases, then, you know, this could be xenophobia and, you know, the the belief in, I, I guess, to some extent, the belief that like, ah, you know, we're going back to good old American manufacturing like that. That's probably about as close as. Americans' analysis of this gets to uh, what it, what is being said here as the as the Chinese mainlander perspective. I just thought that that was very interesting that the, that there's this kind of understanding of like oh yeah this is a this is clearly you know the U.S. sees Chinese telecom infrastructure as a threat, so obviously this is kind of like a natural reaction to it. Yeah, and I also like the way that they 
zoom out from the particularities of President Trump. They say the reasons for these orders lies not in President Trump and his particular agendas, but in considerations like who gets the upper hand in international economy and politics. And I think I think that's spot on. I mean, I think there's there's certainly Trump offers an opening for certain moves by like the broader U.S. leadership class. Um, so there 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 are things that are happening here that maybe couldn't have happened or couldn't have happened in this exact way under President Trump, but they come but they come from a much broader agenda and struggle, which, as you said, is about the ownership of these telecom platforms, these these technical systems that so many billions of people use around the world. And and that's that's what concerns me the most about it is is the the, the relationship between these communication platforms that people use every day and power and surveillance, right? I mean, th- this source and, you know, us on this show, we have concerns about, you know, China's approach to surveillance and censorship, but um, we know as well about the approach of U.S. tech firms and, you know, the U.S. intelligence community. And so how is all of this going to play out at the level of concentrating more and more power in U.S. tech firms that have extremely dodgy records in the past right. you know, 10, 15 years. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I hate to use the, uh, my, my classic, uh, sort of alien versus predator metaphor, <laughs> although I don't know if I've ever deployed it on the show, but yeah, it's kind of, it's a situation where, you know, the, 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 the poster for the movie alien versus predator, pretty bad movie, by the way, uh, the tagline for it is whoever wins, we lose. Yep. <laughs> and, exactly. and I think that's, and I think that's a pretty, that's a pretty good <laughs> example or a good representation of a lot of things, but especially something like this, which is that there is no, like, there, yeah, there is no victory for people, you know, on either side of this, uh, most likely, unless uh, unless there is a radical alternative that is proposed here. Uh, right. No, nothing that we have on offer at the moment, but but yeah, certainly Who, not not anything coming from the powers that that be at the moment. Whoever wins, we lose. That's a really yeah. really well put. <laughs> so we asked in the final question, how do you see issues of surveillance and censorship? playing out differently within U.S. society and government and Chinese society and government. And what we were getting at here was, you know, the fact that, as we talked about, the U.S. is attempting to censor apps that are used by billions of people, but um, at the same time, China already has regimes of surveillance and censorship um, that affect Chinese nationals both within China and abroad. So we were wondering if they could comment on these multiple forms and sources of state control and how they affect them in their daily life. So this is what they had to say. Personally, it's interesting to watch the current president in the U.S. who is using excuses to regulate the Internet similar to the PRC's excuses for these kinds of practices. That is, in the name of national security and national interests. I personally have never viewed any country as part of what people call the free world because each country has its own stands and interests, and that means that it will take due actions, especially when its stands and interests seem to be threatened, even if it means going into conflict with another country, 
and even if it means bullying another country. Because that's just one of the directions the label of national interests can lead you in, regardless of country. Way before all these barriers that are being erected now, I heard many mainlanders talk about the US as the land of free speech and inclusion, and I'm curious how those recent happenings may have changed their views. Regarding Chinese regulations on speech, I think it is probably well known in the US that the Chinese government may pick up what you say, but it's probably less known that some Chinese nationals who are non-officials can be swept up by sentiments of nationalism as well. These people actively watch out for things written or posted online that may appear to them as smearing the homeland, especially when it comes to things said by students from the Chinese mainland who studied in the US. An example I remember is, several years ago, snippets of a Chinese student's graduation, commencement speech were circulated in Chinese social media, because the speech had a line complimenting the air quality in the student's college town. For that line, that student was lambasted by some Chinese citizens as sucking up to other nationals and smearing China. In the context of that student's graduation speech, the student was just relating small moments and memories, like most people would do when saying goodbye to a place where they've been for so long. However, that line was picked up by those poor Chinese citizens because, at the time, the smog issue in Beijing and in other parts of China was getting global attention. That student's words just came out at the exact wrong time, when the Chinese government was trying very hard to maintain a favorable image to the world. What was astonishing to me was that, Despite the student's low profile, something the student said could be taken up and played up so much, I don't think China's, or any other country's, civil servants are so bored as to go out of their way to hunt down a nobody's speech and make a big deal out of it, but it was those Chinese citizens who self-style as guardians of their nation's image that staged the entire farce. And, that is the reason why I asked to remain anonymous here. Even though I'm just talking about what any ordinary person might be talking about, I have no idea how my words are going to be interpreted and probably misinterpreted. Given my identity as an international student from the Chinese mainland, I feel strangely ashamed that, not only do I have to watch out for the minefields of my country's codified laws, but also for certain Chinese netizens, who are even more eager to get into the fray. That, that right there, I think, is a really fascinating answer, probably the most revealing that our source gave us. The concern with state surveillance is, is not so much the state itself, but the kind of cultural and um, political practices that can follow from state surveillance. And for, for this person, it's, it's concerns over, as they describe them, bored Chinese netizens who are more eager to get into the fray of you know, shutting down uh, their fellow citizens than even state officials maybe. And I, I think that example of a student's graduation speech uh, is really fascinating in that regard. Yeah, no, that that was kind of my reaction too. Was that this is you know it, it it's very revelatory of the ways that 
different, I guess, like cultural effects can be seen downstream from these kinds of overt political actions, you know, that are taken, you know, to, to codify a culture of nationalism and and suppress dissensus. But yeah, I, I also just just to call attention to that first part of the answer as well, the line about, you know, not personally viewing any country as part of what people call the free world because countries are basing their policy decisions on national security and national interests uh, is, I think, a, a, again, like a very cogent uh, analysis of international politics and the idea that this is, you know, not uh, most of these policy decisions are not made on behalf of pride in your nation's uh, uh, greatness or or what have you, but about interests and about economic power. Absolutely. And I, and I think what the first part of the answer gets at as well is how things like ideographs and value-laden language become um, effectively smokescreens to conceal interests and, and, and you know, not, not to buy into a kind of rhetoric is bad model of of discourse and language but when you're talking about state discourse it's very hard to overlook the ways in which propaganda and manipulation are so core to the invocation of things like ideographs like the free world right that that construction of the free world has, has always been an ideological one. It's always been intended to legitimate certain unequal power relationships. And I think what, what the source is getting at in part is that that goes on in every country, that every country kind of constructs a rhetorical discourse intended to manipulate its own people into um, accepting unequal power relationships. And here in the U.S., Phrases like the free world serve that function. And I think what this source is pointing us to is that we have to constantly be vigilant and on the lookout for that kind of manipulative propagandistic language, in part because it can uphold and spread and legitimate cultural practices that are really toxic, like ratting out your fellow citizens or your just other people um, in the social space that you're sharing to governments and policing agencies that don't treat people very well. I mean, it made me think as well about the sort of deputization of ordinary people in the post 9-11 American context, the sort of see something, say something model, where our government effectively encouraged us to surveil each other on behalf of the state. I don't think what they're describing is so is so different, really, from from kinds of socially distributed surveillance practices that happen here in the U.S. as well. No, I think I think it's part and parcel with the same the same impulse, right? And it, and it derives from the same sense of this shared interest in national security on like a social ideological level. Uh, that that of course. Whether you know intentional or not, like not to claim a causal link here, but but it 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 serves as this kind of as the ballast that upholds economic interests as well. Um, the more that protectionism and um and and this sort of uh, xenophobia, as well as you know the the deputization, as you said, of 
American citizens, you know, to the and and they're the the further that they cleave to this idea of like American national security and the protection of uh, the free world, the more that you will be willing to just acquiesce to policies like this when you when your leaders say, oh well, it's done in the interest of national security. It's oh yeah, well I want I want to be safe. Yeah, ban TikTok. <laughs> you know, like that's gonna be that's gonna keep us safe somehow. <laughs> um, you know, in terms of these particular policies of banning TikTok and banning WeChat. It's important to recognize that these are the kinds of policies that at least previous administrations condemned China for doing, banning internet platforms, U.S. internet platforms from operating there um, on the grounds that, you know, from China's perspective, those firms were not operating totally in good faith within China. It's fundamentally the same argument that TikTok and WeChat are not operating good faith in good faith in the US and so we have to ban them and it makes you wonder about a whole host of policies related to surveillance and censorship and the extent to which China and the US are coming to mirror each other in very concerning ways yeah it's true <laughs> and i mean this is something that you could that that you could kind of observe this i guess, I guess uh, a slow creep towards um this this you know using the idea of the protection of the free world and simultaneously you know adopting more more and more sort of draconian policies of of control of unfreedom yeah yeah exactly yeah. um i'm i'm reminded of course uh, if i may quote in brief uh, from the uh, from the poet neil young we got a thousand points of light for the homeless man we got a kindler gentler machine gun hand we got department stores and toilet paper. Got styrofoam boxes for the ozone layer. Got a man of the people says keep hope alive. Got fuel to burn. Got roads to drive. Keep on rocking in the free world. Which, which, uh, you know, one of Trump's favorite songs. That's right. And, uh, <laughs> totally does uh, not, did not read the lyrics clearly. <laughs> no, yeah. Irony is, is not, uh, not a, f- a faculty that, that Trump and his allies s- seem to possess. <laughs> he's, he's used that song at multiple events. And Neil Young has, has, <laughs> like, Neil Young's estate has sued each and every time. Oh, my God. Um, That's amazing. So. Yeah. The last comment I wanted to make on our sources answers is that they really clarify the arrangement that we agreed to with them, their their concerns for their own safety and how these policies and these conversations affect them towards the end of their answer when they said, even though I'm just talking about what any ordinary person might be talking about, I have no idea how my words are going to be interpreted and po- probably misinterpreted. Given my identity, I feel strangely ashamed that not only do I have to watch out for the minefields of my country's codified laws, but also for certain Chinese netizens who are even more eager to get into the fray. So they're concerned about policies and practices of compromising recontextualization that, you know, your words can be taken up in a in a communication environment, in a broader, you know, reticulate public sphere that is fundamentally unequal, where your words enter into a complex of international state relations, and those relations are extremely fraught. To the extent that those relations are unequal and are fraught and are 
you know, putting you in a position of precarity, your language and your contribution to public debates are similarly precarious. And I think that's something that rhetoricians should really think more about and engage more with on a scholarly and theoretical level is these kinds of cases where recontextualization can actually mean the safety of your family members. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate what you said about being attentive to the way that these media kind of amplify the already existing inequalities of society. I mean, that's kind of the the basic premise of uh, the term, the digital divide, is that uh, hierarchies of inequality are reproduced and, and probably further entrenched by digital media because particularly they require a different kind of hyper literacy in order to you know even use them in the first place but they also represent these sort of more uh, contrary to what some of us might think that these are kind of liberatory mechanisms that you know are 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 allow for greater access to to certain th- and and certainly there are cases in which they do but it's also very important to remember that these are all contingent upon the sort of ruling powers in a society represented by the government and the, I mean, let's be honest here, like the business interests that they work to represent uh, and that they work to protect. And and I think that, that that has both analytic implications for how we think and talk about uh, internet discourse and internet uh, the the rhetoric surrounding uh, internet policies, as well as you know, as our source is pointing us to the ways that people interact on uh, on these media platforms, it also has implications for our pedagogy in terms of thinking more about accessibility and uh, and power when we're thinking about the extent to which we integrate digital technology into our classroom. To what extent are we putting you know certain kinds of students at risk? I used to teach a first-year writing class on the role of the internet in society and politics, and I, I did have one student who wrote about Chinese internet censorship, and and I remember having a conversation with them about, you know, like, they wrote a really good paper, you know, I was kind of thinking, hey, could I use this as an example in further classes, and they were still very, you know, very concerned about having their work being recirculated and recontextualized, because if there's any way that their name could be put to those ideas, that that poses a material risk to them and their family. It's very palpable as like a pedagogical issue as well, I think. And that's not to say that people kind of evangelize over technology uh, and things like that in in the classroom and and elsewhere. But I think that we we do need to take a really critical look at the broader implications of these technologies as well as the source of where those from whence those consequences derive and and why <laughs> why why there are different kinds of consequences when different kinds of people use these technologies and make their voices public absolutely and i think on a political level we have a real obligation to just generally try to forge us chinese alliances you know at a civil society at a political organizing level that can de-escalate this broader kind of cold war that's going on because it's important to realize that this is not just limited to internet platforms this is part of a broader strategic 
change under the Trump administration towards, I believe the language they used in a May 2020 document was tolerance for greater friction between the two countries, which is, of course, a a really great euphemism for cutting people off from their families, But, but that this is part of a broader military and intelligence forecasting of greater and greater actual physical conflict between the U.S. and China. And this is related to all kinds of investment in highly advanced artificial intelligence, weaponry, other kinds of advanced military and intelligence development in the U.S. And certainly the same thing or similar things are happening in China in anticipation of the same kind of future conflict. But it's not inevitable. It's always framed that way in state discourses. But we in civil society have the power to push back and to organize for a better future. And, um, you know, we got to start doing it. And, and, and hopefully having these conversations is one way to do that. And, and I'm just so grateful to our source for sharing their thoughts with us. And, um, and hopefully we can do more shows like this in the future. I agree. Yeah, the, to the extent that we can we can try and amplify voices uh, and and do so in a safe way of people who are who would otherwise be, you know, marginalized when they speak. I think that it's it's important to get those voices out there and to really critically discuss the the ideas that they present because they they have very important perspectives that I don't think are often taken into account. And I guess just to take us all the way back to the theme of this big rhetorical podcast carnival if the texts and perspectives that we discussed on this show are any indication uh the digital future of rhetoric and composition it's bad folks <laughs> um but it doesn't have to be yes it doesn't have to be exactly alien versus predator that's where we're whoever headed. <laughs> whoever wins we lose whoever oh wins, baby we lose baby I feel let's like do that's, it yeah not to get too explicit here but yeah i feel like that's just a, a good theme for 2020 in general <laughs> well until next time thank you for joining us on reverb everyone and talk to you soon our show today was produced and edited by alex helberg and calvin pollock reverb's co-producers at large are sophie wadzak and ben williams you can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. If you've enjoyed our show and want to help amplify more of our public scholarship work, please consider leaving us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice and tell a friend about us. We sincerely appreciate the support of our listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in. 